Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or the DACA program, was implemented in 2012 by executive action from President Obama. Now, let's be clear, this is not amnesty. This is not immunity. This is not a path to citizenship. It's not a permanent fix. This is a temporary stopgap measure that lets us focus our resources wisely while giving a degree of relief and hope to talented, driven, patriotic young people. The action came after Congress failed to pass more comprehensive immigration reform known as the DREAM Act. On Tuesday, Attorney General Jeff Sessions made a major announcement on behalf of the Trump administration regarding the DACA program. I'm here today to announce that the program known as DACA that was effectuated under the Obama administration is being rescinded. The Attorney General's latest announcement rescinds DACA, but it gives Congress six months to pass legislation that protects 800,000 young immigrants from deportation. On the campaign trail, Trump repeatedly promised to get rid of DACA. We will immediately terminate President Obama's two illegal executive amnesties in which he defied federal law and the Constitution to give amnesty to approximately 5 million illegal immigrants. 5 million. But Trump has expressed compassion towards dreamers since taking office. We're going to show great heart. DACA is a very, very difficult subject for me, I will tell you. To me, it's one of the most difficult subjects I have because you have these incredible kids in many cases, not in all cases. So what exactly does Trump hope will happen as a result of his decision to move the burden to Congress? Will enforcing a six-month deadline mean the U.S. finally sees immigration reform? And how might Trump's base react to this approach? This is Can He Do That? a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. On this week's episode, we talked to a former director of Immigration and Customs Enforcement about our country's immigration policies. And we talked to a dreamer who's now stuck in limbo, unsure about what will happen next. But first, we have David Nakamura here on the show. David is a White House reporter who now covers the Trump administration and previously covered the Obama administration. David, thank you so much for being here. Love to be here. So let's start at the beginning of this. Who are the Dreamers? So the Dreamers are young people who were brought to the country illegally or uh, came legally with their parents but overstayed their visas. And so this name was given to them because there was a legislative effort for many years, several different times, called the Dream Act. And the idea is that these young people came not through any fault of their own, but were brought here by their parents uh, and have lived here pretty much their whole lives. President Obama used to say American in every way except for their papers, and they speak English, and this is really the only country uh, they ever known. And a lot of people say, look, they're dreaming of a better life, they're dreaming of the American dream, uh, and that's why we need to find a way to let them stay. Yeah, so you mentioned the DREAM Act. So that's one piece of legislation or potential piece of legislation. And then you have DACA. Mm-hmm. So can you explain the difference between those two things? Right. So the important thing to know is that to give them, provide them full-time legal status, Congress has to do that. And right now, there's been a number of efforts, most recently in 2010, to provide specifically the DREAMers a pathway to citizenship. And ultimately, about a year and a half after that, 
President Obama was under such enormous pressure to figure out something to do with these, especially these young people, that he and his staff deliberated. Uh, Janet Napolitano, the head of the DHS, Department of Homeland Security, ultimately made the call to go forward, brought it to the White House that they would do this thing called DACA, which is Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, and that's executive action. The idea was that uh, as long as these young people are here, they are, they are not the most important people to go after. There's criminals, there's adults others who've, you know, recent arrivals who've just gotten here. Those are going to be our priorities. We can't deport everybody. So these folks, as long as they're here, let them work under two-year work permits, uh, which DACA allows. They register with the government, and they can renew their two-year work permits. Uh, if they commit other crimes, then they are put off of DACA and, and potentially uh, deported. But the idea was they don't have to worry about deportation. They can come forward and be productive members of society while the government goes after other undocumented immigrants, and Congress potentially finds a, a more permanent way. So since then, Congress has not yet found a more permanent way. So President Trump was faced with figuring out what to do with DACA. So what was he facing in terms of trying to figure that out? Why is this decision happening now? Well, so during the campaign, uh, candidate Trump said many, many times that he was going to repeal DACA. The reason he said was because it was an, he called it an unconstitutional executive action by President Obama. But Trump didn't act. He didn't uh, overturn this. And a lot of his base was upset about that. But others were saying, well, maybe he will just allow this to continue. And so it was unclear. But his administration continued to renew the work permits and even offer new ones. What happened was was, though, that Texas and a number of states controlled by Republicans had sued Obama under a, another action that he did called DAPA, which was for adults, for parents, immigrants who had U.S. citizen children. That was stopped in the courts, and Texas said, okay, now that Trump is president, we're going to call him to the carpet here, and we're going to expand our lawsuit. We're going to add DACA uh, for the Dreamers to our lawsuit unless you act by September 5th. And so Trump was under a lot of pressure, uh, and they came to this decision to ultimately wind down the program. So in terms of winding down the program, he's basically given Congress six months to come up with a legislative solution. Yes. So why this approach? Why, politically speaking, let's say, would Trump do this rather than just end the program altogether or, or take an alternative? Right. Approach? So there's a couple of different things. The, when, when they rolled this out the other day, people may have seen that it was Jeff Sessions at the Justice Department, who's an immigration hardliner, had been against DACA as a senator from Alabama, he came out and announced that it was unconstitutional, and he had ruled that, and ultimately DHS took that ruling and said, we, we need to unwind this. But they said to be humane and to do this in a, in a responsible way, just yanking nearly 800,000 people uh, have these work permits. To yank those permits would cause great chaos. Uh, businesses actually lobbied hard against undoing this program. So the administration said, we're going to try to do this in a responsible manner, which is we're going to continue to renew permits for even those who maybe expire as, as, as late as March. They can try again for more two-year work permits. We're not going to take any new permits, but after March 5th, if Congress has not acted, then we'll start to wind these down and the, and the work permits will begin to expire. And so the idea was that this gives a window to Congress and some degree shifts a little bit of the political burden on Trump uh, because this program and the Dreamers are fairly popular, according to polls, not necessarily among Trump's hardcore base, but uh, the broader public. And so Trump was a little bit trying to split the difference and say, look, Republicans, you need to act if you are going to say that you actually uh, have empathy for the Dreamers. Same with Democrats. Even Paul Ryan had said he favors DACA continuing until Congress can act. So he basically you know, started the clock on Congress to say, if, you know, put your legislation where your mouth is. So we don't know exactly what steps Congress will take when it comes to immigration reform this time around, but we do know what policies currently apply to those who try to enter this country. To explain existing immigration law and the implementation of DACA as he saw it firsthand, here's John Sandwig. 
John is the former acting director of Immigration and Customs Enforcement and served under the Obama administration in 2013 and 2014. Say hypothetically, I want to come to this country from Latin America. How do I get here? How do I go about coming to America? Well, the, the options are actually pretty limited. And I think one thing that always frustrated me when I was working on immigration policy is this argument people need to get in line or they did it the right way when, in fact, there is no line. So absent having really an immediate family member or if you have a job offer, you know, you're pretty limited in terms of your, your ability to get to the United States. There are visas available for more distant family members, parents of adults or siblings. But the line in those cases, it's a 20-year-plus 20, 20 wait oftentimes, from a, especially from Latin America. Does it matter what country you come from in terms of the immigration process? It does in terms of when a visa becomes available, and it gets very complex. But there are per-country caps. And so certain countries where there's higher levels of immigration, the line is a lot longer. Uh, the wait is a lot longer, depending upon who's sponsoring you for a visa. And do you need to have a family relation to enter the country at all? Yeah, well, the, other than, you know, you hear a little bit about what's called the EB-5, which is an investor visa, but you have to, you know, invest at least half a million dollars into a job-creating project in the United States. Other than those, that kind of visa, you have to have a U.S.-based sponsor, and that's either an employer or a family member. Okay, so then given all of this hardship involved in, in coming to America legally, what happens if you come to America illegally? Are there policies in place for people who, who do that? Well, so dividing the world into two halves, right? You have your enforcement apparatus, so you look at things through an enforcement lens, and then just quickly the benefit side. So first of all, from a immigration benefits, you know, in terms of your ability to get a visa. If you come into the United States unlawfully, you pretty much have no ability to get a visa. The exception would be for an individual who comes in on a visa. It can be very complicated, but if you come in on a visa into the United States, and then you overstay that visa... If you ultimately marry a U.S. citizen, you can actually get a green card in the United States without first leaving. Everybody else, and for every other category, however, you cannot get any sort of immigration status inside the United States. So if you cross the border unlawfully and you marry a U.S. citizen and you have U.S. citizen children, despite the people using this term anchor baby, there, there is no such thing. You cannot adjust your status. You cannot get a green card from inside the United States. You have to actually leave to go get your green card. The problem is that what you end up having is, like you have today, where you have of the 11.5 million undocumented immigrants in the United States, about 4.5 million of them come from mixed status families, meaning that somebody in the immediate family, oftentimes a child, but some, and oftentimes a spouse as well, uh, somebody in the immediate family is either is undocumented and others are, are actually U.S. citizens or, or green card holders. Can you just explain the difference between a green card and full-on citizenship? Sure. So what a green card is is basically permanent residence. So it allows you to stay in the United States permanently. And after five years or three years, if you're married to a U.S. citizen, you have the option of, of um, applying for naturalization. So a green card is like a super visa. It's permanent residency. You get to live, work here. You get to do everything but vote. Um, you obviously have to pay your taxes here, but it also puts you on a path to obtaining citizenship. Let's talk about deportations. Do people yeah. get deported for coming here illegally or only if they commit a crime once they've come here illegally? So they absolutely get deported for coming here illegally. The central question in the immigration system is, does this, is this person deportable? And in almost every case, really the question is, did they come here illegally or not? Now, there are a lot of people who have green cards or are here on visas who are here legally who do commit crimes. And when they are convicted of those crimes, then they become deportable by virtue of the fact that committing a crime violates the terms and conditions of their visa. 
there are a lot of times when criminal conduct is at issue in deciding, you know, in the immigration court process, deciding whether or not someone is deportable. I think one thing that's really important for people to understand that they don't often understand, in my experience, is that undocumented immigrants have due process rights, of course, in the United States. And so those due process rights mean that you cannot be deported generally. There's some, some, some serious exceptions, important exceptions. But you cannot be deported unless you have what the equivalent of an immigration trial. And so there are specialized courts in the United States actually administered by the Department of Justice called the immigration courts. And so one of the real impediments, when I think a lot of people look at it and say, well, why can't we just deport them all? Or when Trump says, you know, we're going to really deport them. What people don't understand is that that's not really feasible because the immigration courts are so overwhelmed. Um, there are about 200 judges who currently have about 800,000 cases pending on their dockets. So you have these incredible backlogs that have formed. So when, when an undocumented immigrant in a place like Los Angeles or Phoenix gets arrested, it's not going to be for six or seven years to their actual trial, um, their immigration trial occurs. And it's only after that trial that they can get the legal document, the deportation order, the final order of removal, as it's called, to actually effectuate their deportation. Pivoting to DACA a little bit, you were working at DHS when DACA was first implemented in, in 2012. Yeah. What were the effects that you saw of the policy firsthand? You know, look, I've worked on immigration policy, so I was a counselor to the secretary, then the general counsel, uh, acting general counsel of the department, and then acting director of ICE. And I worked on immigration and border security policy for five years. Our whole goal, as you kind of asked about the criminal system early on, you know, the laws, and we enforce the law, we're enforcing the immigration laws, but what our position was, look, the, the department can only deport, really, because of those backlogs in the immigration courts, really 200,000 people annually of the 11.5 million. And so when you can only deport about less than 2%, of the entire undocumented population. You, you ought to make that count. You know, you ought to get the biggest bang for your buck. When we were working on DACA, we had two big things in mind. One is, look, we can't, we can't deport everybody. Who poses the least threat to public safety? And, and candidly, who has the least amount of culpability for their actions in terms of, you know, entering the United States or remaining unlawfully? And very easy, easy the answer, that's the dream, the dream of our population, right? The, the kids who are brought here as children. And you know, kind of in these conversations, what we some, you know, came up with was this idea of offering deferred action to these kids. And all deferred action is is an exercise of discretion, just like the FBI does every day and every state police department does every day and every prosecutor in this country does every day. Sometimes someone technically broke the law, but for a whole bunch of reasons, it doesn't make sense to prosecute them. And so that's all we were trying to do is the exact same thing. So we just established very common sense criteria, and that was where you brought here as a child, are you in school or if you graduate from school and you have a clean criminal record was the, the core criteria. If you meet those criteria, step forward, pay for this all yourself, no taxpayer dollars, give us your fingerprints, we'll run background checks on you, and if you meet the criteria, we'll go ahead and approve you a deferred action for a period of two years. In the process of deferring that action, which basically all it is is a promise that we're not going to deport you, in the, in the process of getting that promise, you become eligible for work authorization. President Trump and Attorney General Sessions have called DACA unlawful. From your perspective, is DACA on solid legal ground? A absolutely. Listen, when we, when we get this program, it was vetted thoroughly by career counsel, not just political counsel. In preparing the program, you know, we made sure that Secretary Napolitano, who really made the call on the program and really was the brainchild of the program at the department, when we presented to her, one of our first questions was, look, before we get, go much further, we really need to have the general counsel's office do a legal opinion. And it wasn't just political lawyers, you know, political appointees of the Obama administration. It was the career, career workforce who, who examined the issue. They had no doubts about the legality of it. Secondly, the Department of Justice weighed in as well, the Office of Legal Counsel. 
they had no concerns about the legality of it. Look, the president has extremely broad powers when it comes to immigration. The Supreme Court has held this time and time again. Frankly, what Trump is trying to do now with the travel ban and his arguments with relation to the travel ban is he's citing the same broad powers of the presidency to control immigration that he's ignoring in the DACA sphere. You know, the argument that, you know, that the, president, the president has to enforce the immigration laws is true. We agree with that 100%. But how the president enforces the immigration laws and against whom he enforces the immigration laws, he has incredible discretion in, in making those decisions. The president's latest actions and these immigration policies affect real people. Sabah Nafis is one of those people. A dreamer, Sabah is also a doctoral student at Texas Tech University. She tells us her story. So when did you first come to the United States, and and what were the circumstances that brought you here? I moved to the United States in the year 2004, and I came in in the early part of that year. I was 11.8 years of age. I was not very old. I wasn't even 12 yet. It was April of 2004, and we were uh, moving here during that year because my grandfather, who was my U.S. citizen sponsor for my green card, actually for my mom's green card, and we were her derivatives. So basically, we knew once we would move here, we would stay here for a little bit, and then we would obtain our green cards because we had already gotten the approval for that. Unfortunately, My grandfather passed away around that same time, and then two years later, my grandmother, who was also a U.S. citizen, passed away. And so my parents were left to decide what to do at that point, and we could either move back to Pakistan and live in Lahore, which is where we lived, but conditions over there were getting really difficult, you know, with with terrorism and with bombings and things like that. It was no longer safe there, really, so my parents did what they thought was the best for me and for my two older sisters, that we could stay here safely, pursue education. And, you know, my dad always says that America is a a great land, land of opportunity. You work hard here, you can get anywhere, because people here are honest and have good hearts. And so do good work and, and you'll succeed. So that's kind of the motto we all lived through growing up here in Texas. So just for my understanding, if your green card sponsor passes away in the process of your green card review, you are no longer eligible to obtain a green card? Um, Right. So unfortunately, uh, there are lots of nuances with this country's immigration system. It's, you know, people keep saying it's broken, and it really is, because once you move here with the intention of actually living here and you have some sort of status to rely on, but then your sponsor dies yeah, then you were kind of in trouble and you, you know, basically should either go back and then reapply and maybe have the other sponsor sponsor you or, I mean, it's all very fuzzy, at least to me also, even though I've been having to battle with this throughout my life here in the States. Um, but, you know, we went around the whole state of Texas, drove to Houston and met with different attorneys, immigration attorneys, and they all suggested you may as well just stay here undocumented and eventually Congress will come up with a solution to fix all these issues in the immigration system and you might be uh, in good luck at that point. But right now, there's not a lot you can do except, you know, go back and then try to re-enter. But then that could take a very, very long time and that may not be the right course of action, especially since we were going to school at that moment. So Right. And because Pakistan at the time wasn't particularly safe. 
exactly. I mean, I just don't know as a parent. I'm not a parent. So, I mean, I don't know as a parent what goes through somebody's mind thinking, okay, perhaps I can just take my children into a place that is dangerous. And the market we would go to every single day got bombed. And then the park we would go to every single day got bombed. And there was big news on that. Many hundreds of children died. And so we could have been one of those children. And so I really think my parents felt like they had no choice. Okay, so what's your life like in America now? What are you doing? So I'm currently pursuing my PhD with research focused in mathematical biology. I'm studying here at Texas Tech University located in Lubbock, Texas, in West Texas. So after high school, I graduated from North Crowley High School in Fort Worth, Texas. And after that, I, you know, being undocumented, I really didn't know what I could do in terms of pursuing higher education. And so I looked up online resources for students like me to be able to uh, take advantage of guidelines and different uh, rules depending on which state we're in. So I saw that and I realized, okay, at least I can go to college because of the Texas Dream Act that was signed uh, into law by Perry back in 2001. And that basically says that as an undocumented student, I can still go to a, a university here in the state. I just have to, um, you know, sign an affidavit that says, you know, that I plan to one day become a, a U.S. citizen, permanent resident. So I, I found out about all of that and then applied to Texas Tech. They welcomed me. And so I joined Texas Tech back in the fall of 2011 as a freshman, and I did my undergrad in mathematics. So it sounds like the Texas Dream Act really helped you to get an education. But what has the DACA program done for you in terms of opportunities here in this country? So back in 2011, I was still undocumented as a freshman, couldn't work, couldn't drive, couldn't go back home to see my parents. It was a, a very difficult life here in college during the first year. But then in June of 2012, DACA came about and we were ecstatic, all of us young people, because we could actually work and we could be protected from deportation. And so uh, it totally changed my life. You know, I was able to work. I was Because of the work permit, I could have a social security number. I could drive. I could get a driver license, be on the road safely. And then after that, I really realized what it was like to be somewhat of a pseudo-American, you know, somebody who still can't vote, still can't get federal financial aid or any kinds of uh, federal resources, but I could, you know, I could drive at least, and I kind of um, had documentation at that point, so I felt like it was probably the best part of my life being here in the U.S., having DACA. I imagine that when you had to apply for this DACA program, you basically had to share all of your information with the government. You had to say, I'm undocumented, here's everything about me. Was that a scary moment for you to sort of turn all of that information over to the, the U.S. government? Yeah, so that's a, that's a really, really great question. Um, many people in the very beginning of this program were uh, a little wary of what this was all about. And I've spoken out in the last few years about how Asian Americans especially were a little bit afraid to have their children apply for DACA because they weren't too sure if it was the right thing to do in terms of giving away all of their uh, children's personal information, even though USCIS was good about trying to tell people, look, if you're, if you're undocumented or you have your child apply for DACA, we won't come after you. You know, you should still encourage your children to do so. So I, you know, feel kind of guilty because for years I, you know, spoke out 
uh, on on different uh, media platforms and try to encourage young people to apply for DACA. But, you know, these parents, they had it in their mind that, you know, maybe this will go away someday and then the government will have all this data. Uh, I think they were kind of right in a sense because uh, now that's what's happening. They have all of our information. They've done extensive background checks on us. So they have data, you know, biometric data on us. They know where we live, basically everything about us, where we work schools, where we go, things like that. At first, you know, I really didn't even think about it this way, but lots of parents did, that giving away all of our information could put the parents in jeopardy, but then also the children could be in jeopardy someday if the program was taken away. The program hasn't yet quite been taken away. President Trump has passed it to Congress to solve for now. They have until March to do so. What would you like to see Congress do by March? I would just really, really be very happy if they passed the DREAM Act. I mean, that's something that ideally should have happened before DACA ended so that we didn't have this limbo period one more time that we had to live through because it's a time of great uncertainty. I'm not sure if a lot can happen in Congress within the next six months. Even if legislation is passed, it will take some time for it to be implemented. So, I mean, ideally it would be great if the DREAM Act passed tomorrow and the forms and things like that that we'd have to fill out were in place soon after that. And then, you know, we wouldn't all be too worried, but nothing in government can go so swiftly. So that's the scary part. Why do you identify as an American? What about America has been a positive experience for you? Oh, you know, since the day I came to the United States, I realized this is a place where I've always wanted to be, a place where you could be free, you could do anything you wanted to, work hard, and really pursue your dreams, and nobody would try to stop you from doing that. I felt that here from the day I moved. And since then, you know, I've always tried to live the American dream, which is, to me, it's, you know, working hard, proving that I can help my community, help my country, and give back to my country and eventually have the honor of calling myself a true American, which I, I think I am one right now, too. But you know, legally, I'm not defined as one. I'm defined as an alien. So, David, let's be real. Congress is not known for getting things done and getting things done quickly. They now have six months to possibly come up with some legislation. Is it realistic that they'll be able to pass something? You know, I've been skeptical. I covered the immigration debate in 2013 and 14 when Obama easily won re-election over Mitt Romney with great support from Hispanics and Asian-American groups. And uh, Reince Priebus, then the head of the Republican National Committee, came out with an autopsy. What do we need to do as a party to grow and try to win the next election? He said we need to work on immigration. And it looked like a lot of momentum, but we know that it took a year and a half of debate. The Senate passed a comprehensive immigration bill, and then the House Republicans blocked it. The hardcore right uh, was very much against it, and John Boehner did not want to bring it forward for a vote if it meant having uh, mostly Democrats support it and, and, and not many Republicans. So that torpedoed. And after that, I sort of wondered if there anything would ever happen. And under George Bush, there was a similar effort that failed, a Republican president. But ironically, some people are saying now may be the best chance only because you have a hard 
line president on immigration who has had some success bringing down illegal border crossings can can point to that, um, that if he wins maybe some funding for his border wall and maybe some other concessions from Democrats coming down this fall on the budget and other things, he may be able to convince uh, others and himself that he would sign a bill for the Dreamer. So there's a lot of talk in Congress, no real pathway that we know of. But we know that even this week with some of the um, agreements that uh, Trump has struck now with Democrats on a more short-term debt ceiling hike, it gives a little more leverage for Democrats and others to sort of push forward on a, on a Dreamer bill. So it'll be an interesting fall. Trump has set this hard deadline, but he's also said in tweets that perhaps he would consider revisiting this decision if Congress can't take any proper action. Is he undermining himself? Does this speak to Trump as a dealmaker? How will this play it out? It does. It speaks to the administration constantly undermining their own message, mostly from the president himself. And this frustrates aides. It confuses Congress, causes whiplash among journalists and readers uh, who are trying to figure out what the White House's goals are. The big issue here is that to throw these dreamers out of their jobs and put them back sort of, quote unquote, in the shadows, living in the country, but not, you know, uh, having an opportunity to sort of be full fledged members is a big political issue. And he knows it. And Trump purportedly, according to his aides, has empathy. He said publicly that it's a tough call and that he, you know, dreamers should rest easy and he will show great heart. And you're right. As soon as after Jeff Sessions uh, came out with a pretty hardcore statement that DACA is over and it's unconstitutional, we can't have this. And they're restoring rule of law. Jeff Sessions says there's nothing compassionate about not enforcing immigration law and hurting Americans and American workers. Donald Trump, uh, by the end of the day, had tweeted that he would revisit this in six months if Congress doesn't act. And then the next day said, went back and forth saying no second thoughts. And then on Air Force One, telling reporters, you know, he may revisit it and we'll see. We hope we don't have to, leaving a lot of questions. One final point is Republicans are concerned that they will stick their necks out and take a hard vote going into a midterm year, especially in the House, on a legislation that, you know, not all Republicans love, which is to give some legal status to those who are undocumented. And then Trump might not sign it. I mean, it's a big question. So you covered the Obama administration. Is it notable that Obama has spoken out on this in in the way that he has? Yes. So, uh, you know, it's interesting. Obama met with Trump about two days after the election at the White House. Uh, That's a traditional meeting between the, the sitting president and the incoming president. And they met for maybe 90 minutes, which was longer than expected. And some of the topics that we know that were discussed were the threat of North Korea's nuclear program and the fate of the Dreamers. And Obama said, look, you ran a hardline immigration campaign, but uh, it's gonna, you're going to pay a big political price. There's going to be outcry. You're going to have these stories of you know, these young people who are uh, very much Americans in, in a lot of ways. There's going to be story after story in the media all across the country about what's happened to them if you undo this. And if you do undo DACA, Obama purportedly told Trump, I'm going to come out and speak out. And, and, and Obama then said that publicly in his final news conference that he would speak out on a few different issues as to who we are as Americans, and DACA was one of them. And so we expected uh, Obama to speak out if this happened, and he did through a lengthy Facebook post. And mm-hmm. he didn't mention Trump by name, but he was very clear that he felt that it was wrong and cruel and was antithetical to what it means to be American and have American values. One thing that strikes me is that Jeff Sessions and President Trump are saying that DACA is an overstep of executive power when it comes to immigration. President Trump, at the beginning of his administration, issued this travel ban blocking people from seven Muslim majority, eventually six Muslim majority countries. It would seem like these two things can't coexist. Yeah, that was brought up on the day that he announced uh, the end of DACA. I think the White House was asked, Sarah Sanders, the press secretary, was asked that question. 
I got her answer right, I think she was suggesting that the travel ban issue was within the president's authority as a sort of a national security threat and an immediate one, whereas DACA was a question about constitutionality and a, and a wide grant of authority for, that you know uh, circumvents Congress, which has ultimately authority over immigration law. So they were kind of speaking out of both sides of their mouths, but I think legal experts were questioning that. Um, and it's not the first time that the administration would have undermined their own argument for the travel ban. All right. Well, David, this brings us to our last question, which normally is a can he do that question. Yes. But this week he has done <laughs> he it. He did it. Uh, so, he undo it, but he did it. He, right. Yeah. So the question really becomes, will President Trump's strategy here work? Will we have a new immigration policy? The one question we still don't really know is what is the strategy? Does he want <laughs> ultimately DACA to be a uh, formal, legalized, congressionally approved program? Or does he want to look tough for his base and end DACA and, you know, whatever happens to the Dreamers happens? It's not 100 percent clear. He kind of wants both. So I don't think that necessarily will work. I think maybe trying to split the difference and saying he's tough, but once this says law may not be the ultimate outcome. The question of can they get some sort of legal status for the Dreamers has been that sort of a holy grail for a long time of immigration advocates. There's a lot of moving parts. I'm still a little bit skeptical, I have to say, having covered this. Others I've talked to, though, even some advocates on the left say in some ways they do feel a little better position now, maybe the best since, you know, 2010 to maybe get something, uh, not a full, big, comprehensive immigration uh, plan, but maybe some smaller law that does offer some legal status for the Dreamers, which I have to say, one way or the other, whether that's ultimately what Trump's goal was going in, and I, I don't know that he had thought it out quite that much, but that would be a remarkable achievement, not just because it was his first piece of legislation, and that's ironic, you know, that it's about immigration and legalizing folks, but, but really it's something a lot of presidents have been called on and tried to do, Bush and, and Obama to some degree, and uh, hadn't done. And so if he got it and whether he stumbled into it or had a grand th strategy and was a deal maker, it would actually go down as a, a pretty big achievement, whether you favored it or not. Well, we might see the art of the deal in action, I guess. <laughs> All right. You can write a postscript to the book. Yeah. <laughs> David, thank you so much for coming on the show. Sure. Thanks for having me. You guys can follow David Nakamura on Twitter at David Nakamura. Or you can follow me, Allison Michaels, at Allison Mikes. You've been listening to another episode of Can He Do That? If you liked this, review it wherever you listen to your podcasts. Don't forget, you can also stream this podcast online at wapo.st slash can he do that? Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the accommodating Carol Alderman with design help from Kat Rudell Brooks and logo art from Loren Boglio. Like, can he do that? You should check out some of our other great podcasts. Like Constitutional, a series about how people have framed and reframed the Constitution over time from host Lillian Cunningham. Or try Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, where Jonathan brings you the voices you need to hear on the topics you try to avoid. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington Washington Post. Washington Post.